Well, it's the end of our first series. We've spoken to eight remarkable game changers. We've spoken with Stephanie McConnell. We've spoken with Yong Zhao, with Valerie Hannon. We've spoken with Henry Masoma, with Catherine Misson. We've spoken with Peter Hutton, Madeline Grummets, Mark Hutchinson. We've looked carefully at the way in which the model for school is broken. We've talked about the way in which school might head in our times. Let's wrap it all up. Let's go. Well, it's great to be with you again, Phil. Uh, I hope you're having a good morning so far. Thank you very much, Adriano. I'm, uh, I'm physically distanced from everybody, but I've got a nice cup of coffee in front of me. And I'm looking forward to having a great chat with you uh, to talk about what we've learned from these awesome people that we've been engaged with over the past few weeks. So we, we started series one with, with the provocation. And that provocation was, what is the purpose of schooling for today? And uh, when we started to record this particular series, the coronavirus pandemic had not taken hold in any way. So before we start, I feel that's really important to acknowledge and state that during this kind of unimaginable time we find ourselves in, we in education have to be super conscious of, of our parents who are balancing work, finances, a house, and now home learning, our remarkable teachers who have demonstrated an amazing agility and, a, and, and adaptability like I have never witnessed before in my entire educational career. And finally, of course, the young people in the care of every student, every school in, in, in across the globe, you know, who now find themselves without the, the huge benefit of a physical on-campus community and the relationship connectedness that had brought them much psychological safety and comfort. We live in uh, interesting times, Phil. And so, you know, since, since we, we started, we have to have that kind of consciousness about all these different stakeholders now that make up a, a learning community, you know, a thriving learning community. And since then, we have seen this kind of new learning paradigm happen. We're learning remotely, online, distant, off-campus, whatever we want to call this. Let's call it continuous learning, Adriano, because that's what we're well, saying actually, to people. I was actually going to jump to that. So actually, I, I prefer the continuous learning as well, because the, 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 as a result of this pandemic, and it's amplified something that's really interesting. And it's amplified this notion that learning can now happen anywhere and anytime. And many people in education have known this for a while, but it's definitely done that. The other element to it, of course, is learning communities with the complex, complex changes of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. But what, what do we do with this kind of insight now that we have? You know? So this podcast, in many ways, I believe is the sign of our times. But this series, for me, has confirmed that the emotional competency and our inherent humanness is now the new knowledge base in a world that is increasingly automated with artificial intelligence, a more and more prevailing construct. Yeah, look, I think you're absolutely spot on with all of that, Adriano. I think that we might have anticipated a conversation with some really prominent thinkers who are both in schools and working with schools from Australia and from around the globe about how we shift the middle of our profession towards that type of thinking uh, to which you refer. Uh, you know, we've, it's, been, it's been interesting uh, with some of the feedback that we've received along the way. It's really important to note that, uh, well, first of all, you and I aren't the game changers. The game changers are the, are the people doing the work to start with. The second... Absolutely. It, yeah, ab it, absolutely. This, it, <coughs> the second thing that's really important to note around that is that there's been a lot of work going on 
by a lot of people for many years now to get the profession to think about what comes next. Where we've ended up through uh, circumstances of, of extraordinary disruption and pain and human suffering is that place of what's next. And it's compelled yeah. everybody to move in a particular way. It's probably fair to say that we wouldn't have anticipated our profession moving as fast as it has. But of course, it has, because that's teachers. You know, teachers, teachers can respond to the circumstances with care and conviction, and they can shift themselves to where they need to be, even if some of them weren't particularly inclined to go there to start with. And it's been remarkable looking at teachers. You know, again, yeah. when, we, when we posited the notion that the model is broken, one or two people came back to us and said, are you saying that teachers are broken? The answer, of course, is no, teachers aren't broken. Teachers are terrific. Teachers work really, really hard to do the things that need to happen. They have been working uh, under conditions uh, in, the, in the past few weeks where the old model has simply disappeared and they've been inventing it as they go. So for us, I think really, as you said, it's, it's about understanding what's next, what we can learn from, from the pioneers who are doing this stuff and really making stuff happen and have been thinking about it for years in advance and what advice we can distill from game changers to pass on to our colleagues about what they think might come next and then in particular what learning might eventually look like. And maybe that might be our second series might focus on the notion of learning as opposed to school. So we started uh, with episode one with the foundational principle of the Linfield Learning Village in Sydney, New South Wales, Stephanie McConnell. And for mine, Phil, the key learning and the key takeaway was that we have to, to imagine schooling to best prepare all young people to learn, live, lead and work for their future, period. And to this end, Stephanie spoke about equipping young people with the mindset to simply thrive, that learning needs to be more around the contexts of each young person, therefore it has to be relevant. And that a thriving learning community, or in their case, of course, the notion of a village, is about true collaboration, where learning with and from the local and global community is, is a partnership they want to continue to foster. And that the individual learning pathways that they have created uh, over, over, over the time that they have existed is central kind of to not only their learning village, but the future of, of learning in school. Yeah, look, and, and absolutely. And I thought what was really interesting was to look at the way in which the community of inquiry and practice in the village functions. First of all, it's under the precept of being a village, not of being an institution, but of being... Uh, a, a traditional human organisational uh, structure, uh, which is all about relatedness and it's all about connectedness and everybody knowing everybody's business and chipping in and helping. I think the second thing is, is, is that that village, in Stephanie's mind, was born out of frustration with the system and the courage to step forward and to lead in a very human way, but a very determined way to say, there's a better way of doing things. I think the third thing is that there's no perfection in what they do. Instead, there's progress. In other words, there's lots of mistakes going on. Nobody's too worried about, about, about the little things because everybody's in that experimental play type of mode. Everybody seems to be enjoying it. 
that of course requires you know the fourth thing that I, I you know you pick up from there, which is that people within the village at Linfield are choosing to be there. People are choosing to send their children there, and staff are choosing to be there. And that choice, I think, is really, really important because it allows you to be in a space that says, I know that I'm going to be in an environment where we're building, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're like Isambard Kingdom Brunel. We're building the tunnel as we go and we're working out solutions as we go. And, and it's okay. You know, I think sometimes we imagine that it's only our generation, our, our era that had these sorts of experiences. But, you know, as, as I said, Brunel building the, tunnel, the first tunnel under the Thames in, in the 1830s teaches us a whole lot around, you know, the sorts of qualities that we need to thrive in an environment where the focus needs to be on pathways and competencies, not a number and not the illusion of perfection. What's, what I really like in, in what Steph was sharing is what you've touched upon there, and that is there isn't a lot of fear of failure because, let's face it, the fear of failure could actually kill creativity in schools, and, and it has crippled so many for so, so long. And what they've been able to cultivate in their learning village is, is, a, is a true ecosystem that is very organic. And some might interpret that as being a little too free but, you know, some of the best learning is learning that comes from the construct of, of freedom. I mean, that's what education does, right? It liberates people, you know, and, and, and really good quality uh, education helps people see not only their possibility but that of the other. And, and I love the fact that they have, have phrased it as a village because it takes so many as the saying goes, you know, it takes so many to, to, to raise a child. And the other thing that was really refreshing about Stephanie was that she was a leader in a school community that listened to understand, not listened to respond. That she was really open to the possibility of all the voices in co-producing that village. The parents, the students, the staff. Uh, it was this kind of really structural flatness that I really liked about her leadership. And uh, it was a huge props to her and her capacity to trust in that. Yes, ultimately things need to stop with her because we, we know that's how hierarchies can work, but there's no way known that that's how her leadership is being lived out in that village. And I, I think that it, as an example alone is a wonderful model for so many school leaders to really consider going forward. Yeah, look, and that coupled with uh, that that lovely combination of her humility, her sense of humour, her her insistence on not, not taking herself too seriously, you know, it's a, it's a it 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 makes for uh, a winning combination. I thought it was really interesting if we if we just move on to Yong Zhao now, the Yong story, of course, begins in a village too, and he brings to everything he does that sense of connectedness, but also the sense of frustration that you know maybe what you've got within your village isn't what you need and you need to pull your village forward or do you need to move out of your village to seek something else? Um, so much of what Stephanie is doing, of course, is a microcosm of all the stuff that Yong Zhao is talking about, which is about the connectedness of humanity and the social purpose of what we should be doing in schools to prepare kids to thrive in their world. You know, 
Yong Zhao was such a strong advocate and is such a strong advocate for students to become drivers of their own future. So it really is a, a wonderful compliment to what is happening at the Linfield Learning Community about what he has been speaking about for some time now, and that is ultimately around personal ownership and, and self-regulation. For me, the key learning with, with, with uh, Yong Zhao was that we need to abandon the prescribed factory model, that we manufacture scarcity. Life is not about fighting for a few spots, that you can create your own story and your own future, and that adaptive challenges, however, uh, are less precise, intangible, and are usually kind of resolved through a more organic process of trial and error. And, and I suppose you touched upon this at the top of the show today, and that is that we're already witnessing how many adaptive teachers there are during this pandemic. And that speaks to exactly what Zhao is talking about, uh, that, that if we can cultivate uh, a learning paradigm and an ecosystem now that allows for not only young people to develop their agility and adaptability and to be able to thrive in, in, in a world that now will be in constant uncertainty, uh, we also do that with the adults and that we're witnessing that happen right now. And, and he's focused on this um, philosophy around trial and error. You know, for me, it's about two things happen when you have a go. Either you succeed or you learn. Yes, well, of course. And, 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 and the notion of success too is important because so much of, of, of our understanding about success can be framed around the achievement of an arbitrary uh, benchmark, a, a, a number, a grade, um, uh, certification and accreditation, a qualification, whereas, of course, we understand the more we, we move through that while the pursuit of excellence is important and we need to, to, to become the best version of ourselves that we possibly can be and to keep growing that understanding through life, at the end of the day, our success is more... Is more um, humanely defined by our progress and our wellness than it is by the, 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 the attainment of, 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 of baubles, of, of, of sounding gongs and, and, uh, and, 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 and so on. We, we need to free ourselves from uh, what my old constitutional law lecturer, Jim Crawford, would say is the tail wagging the dog as my little pug sits on his bed and looks at us, uh, <laughs> looks at me recording right now. I thought, um, uh, I think it's really important, you know, it, again, if we, if, we, if we move it forward and we, and we think about what Valerie was talking about, Valerie takes that humanity that uh, Yong was very much talking about and she puts it within a compelling narrative of the state of our planet. So she gives us absolutely a framework that sits there and says that there is not just a humanity to what we do, but there is a moral purpose and that the moral purpose that we have is about the way in which we locate and situate ourselves in our world and the way in which we recognise that our, our world is not there to be taken. It is not there to be conquered. It is not there to be owned or possessed. Uh, it is, it, it, it's our responsibility to consider our impact and to on, on our impact on our planet and the way in which we educate our children to understand how they can thrive 
in a world that's being damaged by what we're doing at the moment? You know, Nobel, Nobel um, Prize winning scientist Paul Crutzen first suggested back in, I think it was 2011, I, I read an article on in the Yale um, Environment 360 magazine that we're now living in, in the era of the uh, Anthropocene, describing the value of this kind of new framing of our current Earth history. And this is exactly the quote that, that really resonated with me and why it relates to what Valerie is sharing with us. Students in schools are still taught that we are living in the Holocene, an era that began roughly 12,000 years ago at the end of the last ice age. But teaching students that we are now living in the age of men or humans could be of great help. Rather than representing yet another sign of human hubris, this name change would stress the enormity of humanity's responsibility as stewards of the earth. It would highlight the immense power of our intellect and our creativity and the opportunities they offer for shaping the future. And so, Phil, for mine, our conversation with Valerie Hannon was, was, this, was brilliant in highlighting exactly that, this age of the human, and that we have this responsibility to craft learning communities that understand and embrace stewardship of the earth. And it's about a selflessness, not a selfishness, about place and the other. And that educators and schools have a fundamental role to play uh, in preparing future generations for this world that kind of awaits for them. And, and look, I, I, I think one of the things that's really impressive about Valerie and what makes her a, a, a true game changer is that she's not just asserting some ideology. She's not yeah. just asserting some political stance because she likes it. Uh, you know, she doesn't come from the I reckon school of education. You know, why do we do it? Oh, I reckon it's a good idea. It's all based on a deep appreciation of the research. And yet of herself, she's not um, imprisoned by the research. She's, she's able to weave a narrative that says, here is the state of the world. Here is the state of education. Here is how to bring them together. And here are the things that are really important. And, uh, and we certainly learned about that when we were trying to have a bit of a chat with her and she's sitting there going, no, you need to listen because there's more things that, that, that I have to say. Um, and you know that's a that's a reminder of the of the importance of listening. What did you um What did you feel was the 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 contribution of uh, Dr. Henry Masoma to our 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 discourse? Well, okay. Well, this was a a pretty significant uh, conversation, I believe, in this series for me personally. For mine, this conversation was the reason why I do what I do, and that is teach. Henry reminded me, and probably all of us of that authentic learning is a social exchange of the heart and of the mind. He reminded me of two key fundamental things. The first is self-actualization. When we do the work and invest in improving in ourselves, we evolve all aspects of our being. Then we take what we've learned and share that light and love with the other. This feeling of self-actualization is is worth um, actively working towards for a true kind of personal fulfillment. And the second key thing, of course, that he highlighted was this notion for all, that effective educators leave a legacy and a tremendous influence on the life of the other. That this is a privilege and a gift, what we do, and that never regards study as a duty, but as, as an enviable opportunity to learn to know the liberating influence of beauty in the realm of the spirit of our own kind of personal joy um, going forward. 
and that this is kind of the human act of giving. Therefore, generosity, love, kindness um, become all these kind of, they're not impulsive reactions. They're just part of our DNA. And they require kind of a profound consciousness and a concern for the other. And so I suppose what I'm really saying in, in all that jargon just then, Phil, is uh, he, he highlighted to me in its simplicity and its complexity, the importance, the importance of focusing learning on the human and that every person is home to a life. Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I've, 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 I've learned so much from, from that conversation with him and you, and then the subsequent conversations I've had where we've tried to tease out our research on an education for character and, and the, the, the graduate outcomes for our world of, 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 of good people, of future builders, of continuous learners and unlearners, of solution architects, responsible citizens, and, and team creators. I think one of the things that I really appreciated um, in the conversation with him was the way in which he provided a tangible model of how to be an educator for character, how to do character education. There's a lot of um, teachers who we talk to all over the world who will sit there and go, yes, I get it. I understand the purpose. I, I, I understand that what we are meant to be doing is forming human beings. But how do I do it? Because there's all these dot points and this content and syllabus and so on. And he teaches us that, that it starts with you reflecting on yourself and working out where you're situated in terms of your story how you want to bring service to the lives of others and then what your calling is to do that. You then need to think about what kind of human being am I trying to form? And instead of getting lost in the dot points, instead of getting lost in the equations, instead of getting lost in the coastal landforms, in the dates and facts and all the, all the stuff that we do, he calls on us to say, what is the person we are trying to form and how does this all just fit into it and to do it with a grace and a sense of humor and, and a, uh, and, and a very precocious sense of style too, might I say, he's a very, he's a very sharp man, uh, uh, and a sharp dresser at the same time. So I think that of itself, I think was a really good exercise in, uh, in role modeling, how to do, and education for character and competency. It's, it's not an add-on. It actually comes from who you are, the core of your being, and it flows out into what you do. Um, and that requires you to think of that first rather than to be, as I said, thinking about the stuff that we do first and trying to tack it on top. Talking about uh, individuals who really focus on not only their own story and their own formation, and then how that can then be leveraged to support the growth of the other was our next game changer in episode five, and that was Catherine Misson. Uh, what a remarkable story she was able to share with us from her own upbringing, but then also this commitment, this unwavering commitment, of course, to the empowerment uh, of young women. And, you know, for me, she represented one of those examples of what today's educators really call for and that's an adaptive style of leadership that is that is it is kind of collaborative um, towards a change movement that emerges in kind of a non-linear manner 
from an interactive exchange with everyone, where school leaders and educational sectors kind of need to wake up to the fact that control and order and certainty are now just fallacies. And that agile and adaptive leaders read the patterns of, of life effectively, moulding themselves to the needs of the moment, almost kind of to the sign of the, our times. And, and uh, you know, since our conversation, Catherine and her colleagues have developed a particular model for a way through this kind of remote learning we find ourselves in or that's been thrusted upon us. But theirs wasn't just schooling at home. The model demonstrated her humanity and, and her leadership around listening and listening attentively and then defining it. And the model is centred around uh, the value of well-being and supporting young women in her context uh, to, to self-regulate and take ownership of that as their number one priority. Complemented by really good deep learning through synchronous and asynchronous uh, uh, structures and support from really highly dedicated, you know, teachers who are well prepared to remain with the academic rigor that's required, but being very conscious that the human is at the centre. That's right. I mean, and that and and look, her, her strong voice and her strong vision come through. Um, again, these are not things that are uh, serendipitous. Uh, these are things that are well thought through. There's years and years and years of her own formation that go into that. It's very clear that Catherine's made a choice in education about the things that really matter to her. That of itself, again, too, is a great lesson for educators out there who say, I don't have the time. All this stuff's great, but I don't have the time. To create the time, you must choose what's important and do what's important. And if you get to the other stuff, that's fine. Do what you think's important because at the end of the day, everything will flow from that. Catherine's got some very clear views on what's important in the education of young women and, and what's important for the education of Indigenous folk from around the world. Um, mm -hmm. She makes no bones about it. She's, she's not all over the place. She's not an educational bird either. She doesn't just grab bits and pieces of stuff. Yeah. She's, she will consider the things and then she will take the evidence and the research about what works to make her vision work and go and do that. And she doesn't worry about other stuff around, around about the place. It's about this is what's important. This is how we're going to do it. Here's the evidence around it. And here's an approach going forward uh, around that. And, 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 and it's, 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 it's genuinely impressive to watch that happen. That, I think, is, you know, speaks to the heart of her leadership. And when you look at, um, when you look at the people who, who work with her, that type of leadership rubs off on them too. And, and we've, got, we've got at least one or two of, of, of the folk who Catherine has worked with coming up in, uh, in, in future uh, series of Game Changers and really interesting to look at their journey as well too. Talking about uh, an individual that has uh, utilised extensive research, both in practice and uh, in, in information that they have gathered over time, was episode six game changer, and that was Peter Hutton. Everyone is very familiar with Peter Hutton's story here in Australia and the, and the remarkable way in which he turned around uh, Templestowe College uh, to, to be the thriving kind of creative learning village that it is today. And what, what our conversation with Peter highlighted for me is that school leaders now need to re-examine the purpose of education for today's world. And that they need to ensure that it is based on the facts 
and the emerging predictions about the impact of this kind of uh, change that we are currently witnessing. And that he demonstrated for me that it is our collective responsibility to expose young people to new experiences and possibilities. But if we want them to take charge of their own learning, these experiences have to be worthwhile and applicable in the, in the students' lives, really applicable, not just because traditional uh, dogma says they have to know it. Well, and, and also at the same time, not just because it's trendy and fashionable to pick up the latest thing and run with it and tweet it out and go, hey, this is new, let's do it. And it's, 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 it, it, it's funny, you know, it's because I, I think Peter is amongst the most progressive educators I've come across. But the reason why he does what he does is because he sees the need in the evidence of the world around him and the lives of the kids that he's working with. You know, his frustration with maintaining the status quo is not born out of a personal desire to do the latest thing. It's mm -hmm. born out of an understanding that by failing to align, by failing to integrate, by failing to personalise education to the needs that actually exist, that we do our students a disservice, that that, that moral purpose um, uh, for him comes through. And uh, yeah, there's a touch of the curmudgeon about him too, which I really like at the same time. You know, he's, he's, doesn't suffer fools gladly. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, he, he's never going to die wondering. And again, it makes it very, very clear for people around where the direction is. Um, uh, you know, so it's, it's, and, 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 and so, you, you know, you might go from leading an institution. Now you need to think about influencing a movement. Very, very impressive. So talking about influencing a movement now, uh, Phil, nice segue that was. Uh, episode seven was with uh, uh, Madeleine Grummet. And when I say leading a movement, her passion around uh, empowering young women in the space of entrepreneurship in particular has, has seen over 30,000 young women since 2016 uh, undertake a study in that particular area through her, her championing of her, her business uh, called Girled World. Uh, what, what a phenomenal uh, approach uh, they have taken to real opportunities that exist with private enterprise and partnering with schools and educational sectors to kind of codify curiosity, to connect young people, and in her case, particularly young women, to industry-based people. What a dynamic way to accelerate the work of careers practitioners in schools and scale up with entrepreneurs that are focused on empowering young people uh, across all industries. But in her case, it's about empowering young women across those industries to kind of really smash stereotypes. And I love that because it's kind of not only a game changer, but it's, it's if you see this, don't worry about just the ceiling anymore, we're broken through it type of stuff. And, and I always love having a dialogue with, with wonderful entrepreneurs like Madeline because they are forever curious simply about learning, about living, about leading, about working. So my question to you is this, Phil. How do you quench your thirst for curiosity? Oh, that's such a good question. Uh, I, 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 I think the way I do it myself is I try and hang around people who have got something to teach me about the world and, 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 and people who are different. I'm, I'm very uh, cautious about uh, 
staying in a in a in a fill bubble. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily want people around me all the time who think the same as me, who feel the same, who do the same. Uh, I think that's one of the challenges of entrepreneurship um, is is that constant reinvention, that constant reimagining of what you do, of how you do it. Uh, I think one of the things you have to do is get up early in the morning and just go for it every day that you possibly can because if you don't, then what have you got other than contentment and you know i don't know I, I i i i think driving forward is a better way than than standing still you know peter garrett midnight all isn't it better to die on your feet than live on your knees um <laughs> that's 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 just revealing my age um there right now i think one of the things that i really appreciate about it madeline too is that she approaches entrepreneurship by being entrepreneurial mm-hmm and in everything that she does, she's modelling the competencies that she wants for people around her. When she sees a gap, she goes for that gap. And that's, that's entrepreneurship at the end of the day. Find out where, the, where there's a niche, where there's a space, where there's a need that, that's not being met and go and do it. So if you're curious, what you should be curious about is that which is not working and that which needs remediation. And that's my segue into talking about Mark Hutchinson. And what the Alpha Crucis team are doing in terms of the education of teachers, Mark is is a is is a, is a really busy thinker, and his thinking is all around how do you create models and systems to fix things that aren't working. So if we have teacher education, and let's face it, there's almost nobody outside of teacher education who's got anything good to say about teacher education. Every school you go to will tell you that by and large, people coming out of tertiary training programs are not prepared for the classroom, are not prepared for what they're doing. They're not fit for purpose. So Mark's starting point is, how do we design something that's actually fit for purpose? And let's not worry about what other people are doing and instead let's do something that works. So similitude, is replaced by efficacy, mm. and in do, and and in doing that, I think he, he models the adaptive expertise and the professional self-efficacy that we all need in our profession. We need to do that which works and keep changing and keep moving until it does. You know, uh, our conversation with Mark reminded me of Parker Palmer's uh, Parker Palmer's landmark book, The Courage to Teach, and I'll just read this quote to you. Parker writes, the connections made by good teachers are held not in their methods, but in their hearts, meaning heart in its ancient sense, the place where intellect and emotion and spirit and will converge in the human self. It was a, it's as simple and as complex as that. And I love the fact that uh, Mark is endeavouring to, to cultivate and foster teacher training that has the human at the centre. And a, a huge props to him and, and of course, what, what's happening there at the college. So, Phil, we're going to wrap this up now, this conversation, and, uh, and I've really been appreciative of hearing your insights about the, the eight game changes that we had the privilege of having a dialogue with. For mine, I, I'll, I'll finish off by saying this. The, the American kind of marketing guru, Seth Godin, who I've shared with you before that I'm, I'm a huge fan of, 
You have uh, indeed. Yes, you once, have. Once said the following thing, the cost of being wrong is less than the cost of doing nothing. And if I learn anything from these eight game changes, that is, it's now time. It's time. We can't simply do nothing. We must act in creating a schooling model that has an explicit emphasis on the fostering of confidence, competence and character. Having said that, and above all, this series has confirmed for me why remaining forever curious, highly adaptive, and that when we make a commitment to our own self-efficacy and that of the other, these are the kind of fundamental things to thrive in a kind of new learning environments that we find ourselves in. And if that's then going to become the construct of the new mainstream in schools, we need teachers and leaders who challenge the status quo, who embrace diversity of opinions, acknowledge limitations in their own expertise and seek input, and most importantly, who are not only able to do, as John Dewey has previously stated, learn from experience, but rather learn from reflecting on that experience. It's so important, Adriano. I'm, I've, I've, I've learned so much from my interaction with the Game Changers and also from the conversations with you. I, I, I have a question for you, uh, mm -hmm. too, which is, is that is that in so much of what you're talking about, you're, you're encouraging uh, me to stand up above the parapet and to show the courage to go where my heart leads me in education. How do you nurture that, that heart in what you do? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. It's a bit much like that, that quote I just shared with you, you know, from John Dewey. My, my whole kind of learning journey has been one where I've, I've never planned a single thing, Phil. I've only ever prepared for living. And to prepare for living and to, and to do it where my growth and self-actualization is as important as helping the other and being open to place and the other is through kind of reflecting upon all those experiences. Uh, I'm forever curious and I remain forever curious about living and learning, about leading and about working and about all elements of, of life. But I always, I'm forever remaining curious about the construct of love. And I feel that these things happen through deep reflection and opportunities to engage in rich dialogues with people like yourself, our game changers, and also, of course, the, the amazing individuals I've had the good privilege of working with across you know, my, my entire life. But I just feel that we're here for, for a short time and we either can go on simply existing or we can look at living life abundantly. And for me, living life abundantly is the courage to wake up and to say, how can I be better than I was yesterday? And it's as simple and as complex as that. That's so powerful, isn't it? So powerful. Talking to the people that we're, we're, we should be very grateful for. We're very grateful for our game changers. Uh, Stephanie McConnell, Yong Zhao, Valerie Hannon, Henry Masoma, Catherine Misson, Peter Hutton, Madeline Grummet, Mark Hutchinson. We're very grateful for our two producers in the series, Samuel Wiseman and Oliver Cummins. We're very grateful to all of the people who have given us so much encouragement as this series has been aired. We're, we're, we're really quite surprised by how many of you have been interested in, uh, in, in our little project and, and what, you know, what, what it's all about. 
For us, it's, it really is all about a celebration. It's about establishing a discourse that says there are some amazing people out there in education who are doing things that can inspire all of us to have that courage that you just talked about then, Adriana. Um, and as I said earlier, I want to I foreshadow that, our, that, that, that in our next series, um, and we're going to do a next series because, because people have told us it's worthwhile, um, in our next series, we're going to look very carefully at what learning looks like. But if we've, if, we've, if we've spent a series saying the model is broken, there's a new model, we're building that model right now, the next point to say is what does learning look like in that world where we are putting the human to the fore? I'm really looking forward to it, Phil. Me too. Let's go.